This week, the Russians flew over a nuclear-capable bomber over those same war games, and Jesus said, in the last days, there will be a rise in false messages of salvation. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be a rise in ethnic tensions around the world. There will be rampant disease and hunger. There will be geological, seismological events happening around the world in a manner that is likened unto the labor pains of a pregnant woman. And all those things, those natural course of life events are going to be happening in a birth pang-like succession, therefore increasing in frequency and intensity. And Jesus said, when all those things are going on, look up, I'm coming to get you. Jesus is coming soon, amen? Now, how many of you guys watch his channel or even know what it is? Hischannel.com, I know I've met a few of you out there. Hischannel.com is the largest Christian website in the world. It has nearly a half a billion viewers every single month, and it is dedicated to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes into places in the world where missionaries are no longer allowed to go because all around the world, people have devices where they can log on to the internet and in this manner, hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm excited about a ministry that's going to pop up at uh, Calvary Chapel Surprise, and it's going to be focused on a program, at least in part, that I am privileged to host on his channel called World News Briefing. It airs every Thursday night at 6 p.m. on hischannel.com, and the purpose of it is to view the events of the week from a biblical perspective. We live in a sign-rich environment today, and there are a lot of people today who are disparaging the teaching of prophecy, yet Jesus rebuked the Jewish leaders in his day in Matthew 16, saying, you know, you guys know when it's going to rain tomorrow, but you didn't even know it was the time of my coming. He rebuked them for being prophetically ignorant. And there are eight times as many prophecies concerning the second coming of Jesus as there are the first coming of Jesus. And I'll say it again, Jesus is coming soon. The signs are all around us. So this new ministry, Brian, are you in here somewhere? Oh yeah, Brian, stand up. Brian is going to be hosting a ministry where the purpose is to view World News Briefing and then spend some time talking about the stories of the week and looking at them from the perspective of Scripture. So get a hold of Brian and you'll get further details in the future. In the back. Awesome. Okay. So excited about that. Well, here we go. You guys ready to rock? Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, we'll look at three Davidic Psalms here today, two this morning, one this evening, and I will say there is nothing in the history of literature that compares to the book of Psalms. Comprised of five separate books, and within those five books that make up the 150 chapters we call the book of Psalms, are monuments of scripture. Much like we've been hearing from Psalm 34, which happens to be one of my personal life chapters, Psalm 34. We, of course, our minds would run naturally to Psalm 23 and the very familiar words known all around the world by believer and unbeliever alike that are recorded there. The magnificent words of confession in Psalm 51, Psalm 83, 
and the battle that is recorded there. And then you've got the pillar among pillars of Psalm 119, which is an absolute literary masterpiece. 176 verses. It is known as an octagonal acrostic. And an acrostic is when you have a series of sentences that each begin with the sequential lines of the, or letters of the alphabet. Now, could you imagine being assigned a task to write a paragraph with each sentence using the characters of the English alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and each sentence beginning with the sequential letter. Now, not only would you have to write this in a manner that used the first letter and next letter of the alphabet in sequence, it would also have to make sense. And then you have Psalm 119, which has this practice employed where the first eight lines are the first letter of the 22 consonants of the Hebrew alphabet, followed by the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, used eight times, and the third letter eight times. And this process is repeated eight times in Psalm 119, in these 176 verses. It is absolutely undeniable that the Holy Spirit was involved in the writing of that majestic book. And then you come out of Psalm 119 and you begin the Psalms of Ascents. One Psalm read for the ascension of each step as the Jews would go up on a feast day or a high holy day to worship on the Temple Mount. And then you come to the end of the Psalms and you've got a series of five Hallels, five praises to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. There is nothing like a study through the book of Psalms. But I have to say, one of my favorite parts, so there are various authors of the Psalms, including some anonymous Psalms, one of my favorite parts about studying the Psalm is who the primary author was, who God chose. King David wrote two, the first two books, and he has a sprinkling throughout the balance of the book of Psalms. He is a man that's just like you and me. He's a man who had his struggles. He's a man who had his failures. He's a man who had his victories, yet he was a man whom God himself dubbed as a man after his own heart. He was a man who understood what it meant to know God and to man up for God, even as a teenage boy. And he understood that knowing God afforded him to have giant killing power. And even after the armies of Israel were, Israel were defied, standing over the valley of Elah on either side as the Philistines were on one side and the armies of Israel on the other and Goliath standing in the valley below, challenging day after day after day the Israelites' armies, David comes up and sees this whole scene and he says this in 1 Samuel 17, 25, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And if I could bring it up into the vernacular, David is saying, who's this clown? who dares, defies the armies of the living God. David's 13 or so at this time. And yet he understands the power that is within him because he knows the great and awesome God of heaven. And he walked like a man, even as a teenage boy, remembering that his previous task before killing Goliath and taking off his head, which he told him he was going to do in advance, he tended his father's sheep, which his brothers mocked him for. But even then, with David at this task at hand that was looked down upon by his own brothers, David even manned up then. As he said, he was going to fight Goliath. And Saul the king said to him in 1 Samuel 17, 33 to 37, you're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him for you're but a youth. And he's a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant, now I like this, 
David was sent by his father as a tender of the sheep to bring some bread and cheese to his brothers who were in the war. But David realizing what was going to go down, David says, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. In other words, he understood after what I'm getting ready to do, my life is going to change because I'm going to do it in God's power. He says, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion and a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and I struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this clown, this paraphrase of uncircumcised Philistine, will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Men, let me pause and just say this. Don't minimize where you're at in life right now. God can do great things through you. Even though you may be waiting for the next thing or for your calling to come in its fullness, you serve God right where you are. You're a giant killer right where you are. And don't let the devil minimize in your mind who God has made you. Yet we also know that King David is, even in secular society, almost as renowned for his greatest failure as he is for his greatest victory. In 2 Samuel 11, 1 and 2, we're told it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle, David should have been among them, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. We know the rest of the story with Bathsheba and how one sin led to even greater sin as David then became complicit in the murder of Uriah the Hittite, her husband. I couldn't help but think as we remember what David had done, both his victory and his greatest failure, somebody said, men, after you're married, you can forget all of your mistakes. There's no point in two people remembering them. David remembered his, and he learned from his, and he taught from his. And that's what we're going to find as we venture into three of the Psalms penned by him under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see in this Psalm this morning that we examine where King David draws a contrast between two life experiences that you and I must choose between as well. And the chapter is very short but very down-to-earth and practical. And our title is going to be kind of street-level, if you will, this morning. And what we're going to learn about from life from this psalm is twofold. We're going to learn that we have two choices in life. We can live, and here's our title, blessed up or messed up. I don't know about you, but I want to live a blessed up life, don't you? Now, the five books of the psalms open with what is described as the preface psalm. Now, interesting, if we consider the words of 2 Timothy, we know those are the last words of the great apostle Paul, and therefore the last words of any man that was used by God in that manner ought to be heeded, as well as his opening words. And this is the very 
opening statements of the greatest literary piece as a book, I should say, the whole of the Bible obviously would be under that umbrella as well. But these are the opening statements of an unparalleled book among all books that is the book of Psalms. And we need to heed what David is saying here. Now, some say Psalm 1 and 2 are actually a single composition, and I'll assign you the task of reading Psalm 2 um, on your own later. But this Psalm that introduces the five books gives us an overview of the human condition and the distinctions between the life experience of the godly and the ungodly. So, men, the choice is yours. You can live blessed up or you can live messed up. And we have to choose. Let's take a look at this great psalm that opens this masterpiece of literature inspired by the Holy Spirit. Psalm chapter 1. Let's read through the whole thing, all six verses, and then we'll dissect it a bit. Verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates when he has time. (laughs) Is that what it says? He meditates how often? Day and night. Here's the end result. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly, conversely, are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And Father, we ask now once again that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. We thank you for the promise of Isaiah that your word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And Lord, we know what's in front of us today has been sent to us in order to strengthen us and encourage us to walk like a man, a man who's wholly committed to his Savior, Jesus Christ. Teach us, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it. And all God's men said, Amen. Now, the first observation is going to come from verses 1 and 2. And I am often intrigued by the things which the Holy Spirit inspires the authors of the Bible, the holders of the pen, to write, both in content and sequence. And in this case, it's the latter of those two that I find to be curious, the sequence in which this psalm is structured. Now, I present that to you this morning because one of the colloquialisms of our day, and you've all heard it, probably even said it, and that is the world needs to know what we are for, not just what we are what? Against. And that statement or sentiment is true, but what it has morphed into basically is that we as the church are not supposed to be against anything. And yet the Spirit inspires King David in the opening words of the very first psalm to present living a blessed life in the negative or what not to do. He says blessed, the word blessed means what? Who knows? Happy. Happy is the man who does not. And then the Spirit inspires the use of three idioms for human behavior. Happy is the man who does not walk, sit, or stand. And we often hear about our walk with the Lord. We hear about people running with the wrong crowd. And these idioms and metaphors mean the same thing. And when we align ourselves to the wrong things, we're going to have that result come about and manifest itself in our lives. Now, Paul captured the same idea in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18, where he said, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 
For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Do you believe that, man? And God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be, who knows? Separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says El Shaddai or Lord God Almighty. And David says, as does Paul, that we are not to align or yoke ourselves or make life spiritual, life or spiritual decisions according to the counsel of the ungodly. And there's plenty of that going around today, even as we talked last night about that Newsweek article about manning up, which was diminishing the role of man, not only in the last days, but in any day. And standing is an idiom which implies taking a position. And we often ask where a person stands on a particular issue, especially at election time. We want to know where a candidate happens to stand. Sitting implies permanence or having drawn a final conclusion. And the digression that is presented to us is clear, and that is who you walk with will influence what you stand for and help determine your concrete or permanent moral and spiritual beliefs. Now, the word counsel in Hebrew can mean advice or even to propose. The word path means course of life or mode of action. And the word seat means an abode or assembly. Now, if you want to be a blessed person, a good 30% of you want to be blessed. That's kind of scary. If you want to be a blessed person, there we go. Listen to the advice. Do not listen to the advice of the ungodly world. Don't let them define your course of life and your means of making decisions on any matter and do not be seated with them in your beliefs. Now let's put some skin on this with an issue of today. Listen, if you want to be a blessed person, do not accept the world's position on marriage and sexuality. Do not accept the world's position on marriage and sexuality, a very practical application. They're asking us to redefine marriage. God says, say God says. God says says marriage is between one man and one woman. And that's the end of the definition. There are no amendments that are going to come later in the history of the world. Anything outside of that is not marriage according to God. I'm going to stay on God's side, not culture's side. I'm not going to let society pressure me into thinking the way they do because they are godless. They do not know the Lord. And our message to them is Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul said. The one thing I know, the one thing I preach is Jesus Christ and him crucified because listen, the natural man, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, cannot discern the things of God because they are spiritual. And if you want to discern spiritual things, you have to be born again or born of the Spirit. So listen, as we engage culture, as we engage society, we tell them Jesus loves them. We tell them Jesus died for them. We tell them that they're a sinner in need of a Savior and God has supplied but one Savior and that is the person of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, come into this world through supernatural means and a virgin birth to die for the sins of the whole world. That's our message to the world. We go to the world and preach the gospel. We don't say, hey, what do you guys think about marriage? We don't need to ask the world what they think about marriage. God already defined it. 
And his decisions are final. And too many Christians today are arriving at their moral opinions from the book of Second Opinions. Which is actually not in the Bible. If you have that book in your Bible, uh, please see Pastor Brett and he'll get you a real one. Listen, guys, God is God. How was that for deep? God is God. He is so far above our understanding. We can't sing songs that describe him or songs that he is worthy enough. There's no such thing. There's no words. The heavens declare his handiwork and his glory. There are no words that we can offer that are sufficient to thank him for what he does or even describe who he is. And we need to understand the magnificence and the majesty of God in these last days. And let me just add this. Listen, guys, God is not looking for human input on matters of morality. He is not taking a survey. He has no suggestion box. He says, you know what? You want to be blessed? Don't walk, stand, or sit in ungodly counsels. Don't make your home among them. Don't make your life decisions according to them. Do not align yourselves with the world's definition of success or prosperity. Do not take positions of the world that are contrary to the word of God. Unless, of course, you want to be messed up instead of blessed up. Now, let's put this in application form. Here's a thing for you to jot down this morning. Listen, the do's and don'ts of the Christian faith both lead us to blessings. The do's and don'ts of the Christian faith both lead us to blessings. Now, you know, it's kind of interesting in these last days, some of the things that are being morphed into and called godliness and what Paul talked about uh, when he was describing the character flaws of humanity in the last days in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said they would have a form of godliness but denying its power. And that word form is the Greek word morphosis and it means to form out of something that previously existed. And what is happening today is that there are things forming out of Christianity which has previously existed that aren't Christianity at all. And there are some things that are becoming dangerous to the minds and the hearts of people today who sit under much of the teaching that is in the world today. And, you know, as someone who studies and teaches prophecy, I always find it very disconcerting that the major, the majority of Christians today do not believe that the Israel today is the Israel of the Bible. And how you can arrive at that conclusion through Scripture is beyond me, especially looking at chapters like Jeremiah 31, where the Lord says, if you see the sun and the moon abandon their ordinances, in other words, if the moon doesn't come out at night and the sun doesn't rise in the morning, and the seas do not keep within their prescribed boundaries that I ordained at creation, then you'll know that I have cast off Israel forever. Did not Daniel prophesy in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, that there were 77s determined for Daniel's people in his holy city? We know that 69 are fulfilled. And what did God say all of a sudden? Ah, you know, forget about that 70th thing after the way you acted. Aren't you glad he didn't treat us that way and doesn't treat us that way? There is a seven-year period that is unfulfilled in the prophetic scheme concerning Daniel's people who are the... Jews and Daniel's people's holy city, which is Jerusalem. So that week is going to be fulfilled. Another movement within the church today that is very, very troubling 
And I wanna say this with great care because it is a magnificent reality within how we are saved and we are to uh, be blessed by it and enjoy it. But there are some pastors today, to hear them teach, that you would think that grace was the only doctrine in the Bible. It's called the hyper-grace movement. It's called the free-grace movement. It has manifestations in what's called antinomianism. antinomianism. See, it's hard to teach and it's hard to even say. But what that means is that because we're saved by grace, there's no moral code for Christians to live by. Well, let me ask this. If there's no moral code for Christians to live by, why does God discipline his children? For just no reason? Have you ever, as a parent, just give your kid a smack just because you thought it'd be fun? No, we don't do that, right? If there's discipline involved, it's because there is a reason. And if there's reasons for disciplines, don't those reasons have to be predefined so we know how to walk in a manner to please God and avoid discipline? Anybody ever been behind God's woodshed? Yeah, man, I don't like it back there, do you? No, it's messed up. I like the blessed up stuff. And you know, we have to understand, I think, first of all, what grace actually is. Grace is defined as basically unmerited favor, or it's described, I should say, as unmerited favor. If you go back to Genesis, where Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, that word means to stoop to an inferior in kindness. The Hebrew word there is Cain. If you used uh, English characters, it would be spelled C-H-E-N-E, Cain. And it means to stoop to an inferior in kindness. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God stooped to man, an inferior in kindness, and told him to build an ark that he and his family might be saved. However, the New Testament word is what? Who knows it? Charis. Charis or charisma would be the extended form. But here's what's interesting. The word translated means grace or graciousness. But the word defined does not mean unmerited favor. The word defined, charis defined means divine inspiration in the heart and its reflection in the life. That's the only thing charis means anywhere in the New Testament. It means divine reflection in the heart, divine inspiration in the heart, and it's reflection in the life. In other words, when God moves in, he changes the person he moves into. And you can see that their life is different. You can see that they're not walking uh, according to ungodly counsels anymore. And I love the story of that little girl who was riding home from Sunday school with her mom, and you could see on her face that she was very troubled, and the mom looked over and said, Honey, what's wrong? What happened today in Sunday school that, that troubled you so much? And the little girl said, well, the Sunday school teacher said, God lives inside of us. And the mom said, well, he does, honey. And she said, well, the Sunday school teacher said, God is bigger than us. And the mom said, well, yes, honey, God is way bigger than us. And the little girl said, well, if God is in us and God is bigger than us, wouldn't he show through? The answer is... Yes, divine inspiration in the heart. God stooping to you and I as inferiors, sending his son into the world to be our kinsman redeemer, that he might once again be related to us and therefore his blood become our means of salvation. Listen, we need to understand what the Bible teaches. We need to understand that the do's and don'ts of the Christian faith are there for our instruction. But also consider this this morning. I know that Pastor Brett has mentioned you're teaching the book of Romans at Calvary Surprise, and a careful study of Romans will tell you that the law does a bit of a role reversal when you get saved. When we are unsaved, the law condemns us. 
There's no provision for salvation in the law. It only kills, according to what Paul said. And if you read carefully through Leviticus and the second law, Deuteronomy, you'll find that the law is simply a taskmaster, is how it's been described. But once we're saved, the law then changes roles, and it begins to protect us and preserve us. And this is what verse 2 is saying, that the law of God that the blessed person delights in, and some see that as the whole of the Old Testament, which is unlikely because the Old Testament hadn't even been written uh, in its entirety. None of the prophets had written when David wrote. But it seems clear that what's being discussed here is the moral law of God given on Mount Sinai. So I want you to think about just a handful of the commandments, and let's see if our premise is true. Exodus 23 says, You shall have no other gods before me. Now, there's a group on the planet today that has another God other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they claim to be one of the Abrahamic religions, and Abraham was indeed the ancestor of Ishmael. And we know that this group, based on the actions of Isis, who actually are following exactly what their book commands them to do, let me ask you about these people who follow another God. Are they blessed up or messed up? Isis is messed up, amen? That's because what they're taught and who they follow is humanly created. And Allah, which is simply the Arabic word for God, it would mean Zeus, it could mean Hermes, it could mean anybody else. It's just an Arabic word. But we know a God personally whose name is Jehovah, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is the only true God. So therefore, when you begin to follow after other gods, your life is going to be messed up. Think about Exodus 20:14. You shall not commit adultery. Now let me ask you this. Who has the more blessed life? The person who is faithful in their marriage or the one who ravages their marriage and often their children with almost unbearable grief and sorrow by committing adultery? Who has the better life? Who's more blessed? The one who is unfaithful, their life is a mess. Think about this in Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey. Now you guys quit coveting your neighbor's ox, all right? His possessions, obviously. Nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor. Now what about this? Is a person more blessed through contentment with what such things as they have or greed-driven overworking for the elusive and fleeting riches of the world, which are passing away. Well, obviously, the law of God that first condemned us now blesses and protects us as those who have been spared of the wages of sin. It's really pretty simple. God's not gonna force himself, or force us, rather, to do things his way, nor will he bless disobedience, even though disobedient saints still enjoy the common grace of God. That's what the Bible says, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, the sun rises on the evil and the good. But who wants to live like that? I don't want to live at the bottom rung of the blessing ladder, do you? I want to live in a manner where my life remains blessable. And the do's and don'ts of the Christian faith both lead to blessings. There are things we are to be for, and there are things we are to be against as God's people, and both are causes for divine blessing. Take a second look at 3 and 4 once again. Pick it up in verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And what's the next word? Whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff 
which the wind drives away. Now, we have the end result of delighting in the law of God illustrated via a tree planted by rivers of waters that is fruit-bearing and does not wither, followed by the interpretation of the metaphor, which says, whatever that person who does, uh, whatever that person does who meditates, meaning to make his their primary focus the word of God, the plans and purposes of God, are going to prosper in whatever they do. Now, this wasn't a new concept. It was something simply being repeated by King David as the Spirit inspired it because we see the same promise made to Joshua in 1, 8, and 9 as he was taking over for Moses, Moses having died, and now Joshua leading the children of Israel into the promised land. The Lord said, after having told Joshua that I'm going to be like you just as I was with Moses, he says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you to be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, if you look at the life of Joshua, you can see how this played out in his own life and that this doesn't mean that prospering and good success are defined as the absence of trials. Trials come to all of our lives, amen? Amen. Tribulations and battles. But even in those things, we have victory. Anybody interested in victorious living? Amen. Walking like a man requires walking according to God's word day and night. Now, when Joshua failed at this, things got messed up. Like when he failed to pray before attacking Ai and 36 of his own men were killed. When Joshua was faithful to do the things that God had commanded him to do, like at Jericho, he was blessed up. Things went well for him and so too with you. Now, if we set our moral compass and definitions of success and define our priorities by the word of God, we're going to be like a tree that is constantly watered. We'll be fruitful, and even the non-spiritual elements of life are going to be blessed, which is represented by the leaves in the metaphor. Now, this is not so for the ungodly. They'll be like chaff driven away by the wind. Now, consider the contrast here. Those who meditate day and night on the word are rooted like a tree not like the ungodly who are likened to the husks that covers the pieces of grain that are blown away by the wind. Now in Matthew 3, 11 to 12, we can get some clarity on what exactly that means, where Jesus said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, or John the Baptist says of Jesus, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now the threshing floor was usually set on a hill where the wind would consistently blow and the wheat and the chaff were separated by the natural effect of the wind blowing the husk away from the separated grain head. Now, when the wind was calm, however, even on the mountaintop, a winnowing fan was employed. It was a large fan that would indeed be used to create the breeze where the husk and the head of the grain would be thrown into the air and the fan would blow away the chaff and the heavier grain would fall to the ground. And here John the Baptist says, there's a winnowing fan in Jesus' hand, portraying him as a judge of his rejectors. Now, one of the sad realities of our day is the multitude of church attendees 
who expect the blessings of obedience while living in disobedience to the word of God. We need to obey God's word. We need to not do what God says not to do. Are you here this morning? We need to not do what God says not to do. We need to do what God says to do. And our life will be a blessed experience even in the midst of the trials and tribulations of life, which I want to talk to you about in our next session. There is cost to ignoring the word of God. I want you to think about this. We're told in 2 Corinthians 11 that the devil masquerades as an angel of light and it's no wonder that his ministers do the same thing. Now, light is uh, used uh, idiomatically of truth, of blessing, of positive experiences. Listen, the devil can give you money, but he can't give you peace. The devil can give you provision, but he'll never give you protection. And the things of this world that we often look at and are enamored with are things that the devil is capable of providing as well if it will cause you or me to get off course. And many are following teachings today that are way off course. But the metaphor here goes beyond the spiritual and includes the practical. And let me just package our second truth like this. It's overly simplistic, but it is something we can remember. Listen, guys. The plans of man never work out better than God's. Amen? The plans of man never work out better than God's. Anybody ever done their own thing before? Yeah. Gotten out in front of God before? Yeah. We've all been there, done that, got the t-shirt. God has a plan for you. Hello? Did you think I said there's no lunch today? God has a plan for you. That's exciting. Listen, God who speaks universes into existence knows your name, the number of hairs on your head, a lesser task for some than others. And he has a plan for you. And it's a perfect plan. And it's better than any of your plans. And even if we put together our own packages and say, okay, here's my life goals, here's what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to accomplish. We've had those things change too, haven't we? But God's plans are always better. And therefore we need to look into them and meditate on them day and night. He knows what's best for you better than you do. He knows what's right for you better than you do. He knows what to give. Listen, he knows what to give to you and to what, what to hold back from you that's best from you. What did Job say? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Finish it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now Paul said in Ephesians 4, 14 to 16, we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, that's talking about church members, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, we are not to follow the teachings and plans and all the social pressures of the world. We are not to fall prey to the ministers who masquerade as ministers of light who have been creating chaff for centuries. And Jesus said the chaff makers would be worse and more numerous in the last days. Now, don't live according to the word, and spiritually you'll be like chaff, 
Oh, maybe you'll have some material blessings that the devil is able to provide, but it's only to steer you off course. And your life is going to wind up messed up. I remember having the call of God on my life as a young man after I had returned to the Lord after years of prodigal living, having destroyed my marriage, having my wife left me for eight months. I didn't see my wife for eight months. And I tell you what, it kills me to this day. It kills me to this day that I missed my little baby girl's second birthday because I was a stupid, violent, drunken, drug-abusing moron. It almost cost me everything. But God. But God had a different plan. And I had a good job. I was a functioning drunk. I never missed work. I worked hard and I earned a good living and I worked drunk all day, every day. I was cursed with not getting hangovers unless I drank wine. So I hated wine. I never drank it, but I drank whiskey like it was water. And I thought, man, I'm doing pretty good. But my life was messed up. And let me tell you something, guys. The plans of the devil always lead to destruction. And God's plans are way better. I like being, and I like the old saying, I may not be all that I should be, but by God's grace, I'm not what I used to be. And I am thankful that he has healed my marriage. If any of you are having marital difficulties, I wrote a book called Happily Even After. And it contains a portion of our testimony, but it's a nuts and bolts, practical handbook to living out the married life. And as I said last night, coming up now on 40 years, I am so thankful to be sober. It's been the best two weeks of my life. <laughs> no, these last 35 years, God has been so faithful. And he has been abundantly blessing. And man, I tell you, if there's one thing I know like I know my own name, it's that God's plans are always better than mine and better than yours too. Now, I want to say something here, and I put it in my notes so I didn't forget to say it. I am always, when I teach, very careful of my choice of pronouns. I always say we and us. I always try and make sure that I'm not standing in front of anybody as though I'm better or separated from the rest of you. But I've been using you and your today. And the reason I'm using your and your today is because I already made my choice. I'm choosing blessed up. Now the choice is yours. It's decision time for all of you. Let's look at five and six once again and we'll wrap up our first session here this morning. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall do what? Perish. The Psalm of David, like many of the Psalms, is one of contrast. The blessed up and messed up experiences are the words we've used to highlight them, but the contrasts have been profound. The blessed person does and does not do certain things. Well, the ungodly aren't like that. They do whatever they want. They do whatever is right in their own eyes. Their moral code is subjective. Their ethics are situational. They decide what's right and wrong in their own lives, and it totally messes up their lives. 
The blessed person is like a tree planted by rivers of water, rich in fruit and leaves that are abundant, yet the ungodly are not so. The contrast is made not like leaves and rich fruit. They're like chaff, unstable and subject to the shifting winds of change, whichever way it's blowing at the moment. Now here the comparisons reach forward into the two groups also having contrasting eternal destinies, which clarifies for us that the behavior in your life can indeed indicate where you're going to spend eternity and the need for some to repent. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am a way. What did he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Proverbs 14, 12 gives us a contrast. There's a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way of what? The way of death. And even though and as often as the progressive Christian liberals cry foul to any call to holiness in this day and age, listen, there is an inseparable connection between true belief manifesting itself in corresponding holy behaviors. And when God moves on the inside, he shows through on the outside. Jesus said he's the only way to heaven. Many today say there's other ways to heaven. The Bible says they all lead to death. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 to 14 in the Sermon on the Mount, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. Some time ago I wasted 20 minutes of my life watching a man refute one of the most basic doctrines of the Christian faith, and that is the penal substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. He said, God is not angry with anyone. Psalm 711 says, God is a just judge and he's angry with the wicked every day. This man said, even in your unbelief, you weren't God's enemy. Colossians says in 121 to 23, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he, Jesus, has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed, there's the qualifier, you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now this man quoted these very verses, and he said, see, you were only enemies in your mind, not in God's mind. That's a perversion of scripture. The man that pastors the largest church in the country was asked publicly on national television. He said, when asked about heaven and hell, he said, it's not my job to say who goes to heaven and hell. God looks on the heart. Well, God does look on the heart, right? What's his conclusion? It's deceitfully wicked when God looks on the heart. But listen, when he comes to salvation, he's not looking at your heart. He's looking for evidence of his son. He's looking to see if you are one who is in Christ, a new creation, having old things passed away. Behold, all things have become what? And he's looking for manifestations of Christ in your life and mine through what we would describe as personal holiness or practical holiness, a change of life, Christ showing through. And David says there's contrasting eternal destinies of both the blessed man and the ungodly man, potentially. And that destiny is identified by how a person treats the word of God, including the exclusive claims of Jesus as being the only way 
to heaven. I've seen a YouTube video with Oprah Winfrey who said when the question was posed, Jesus couldn't possibly be the only way. And I love how a woman in the audience responded and she said to Oprah, because you say so? He couldn't be the only way because you say so? And Oprah openly had confessed that she fell away from her Baptist roots because she heard the pastor say that God is jealous of her. God's not jealous of you. He's not jealous of me. He's jealous for you. He loves you. He longs to have you in his presence and to bless you and to cease you living, me living a messed up life. Listen, Jesus is the only way to heaven. And that's the job of the Christian to proclaim and the pastor to tell the world. We're not here to tell the world what they want to hear. Paul prophesied in the last days that people would have itching ears. They wouldn't put up with sound doctrine, but they would heap up or attend churches that will tell them what it is they want to hear. And listen, as a pastor, I know Pastor Brett would share this as well as Pastor Brad and others here, Pastor John. We live in a bizarre age. It's a crazy age. And when people today hear something they don't like, they don't change their ways, they change churches. They go find somebody that'll tell them that they're okay in their sin and won't ask them to repent of it. Now here's the last truth from our first song. We already said this earlier, but I want to pack it once again this way. Listen to this this morning. God does not adopt his plans to accommodate human wishes or opinions. God does not adapt his plans to accommodate human wishes or opinions. The way of the righteous, which is love-based obedience to the word of God, will allow them to stand in the day of judgment. We have an advocate with the Father who's going to be standing with us before God. And we are either going to be found in the Lamb's book of life or we are not going to be found in the Lamb's book of life. And I want to talk to you more about this in our next session. But because of Jesus, we can stand in the day of judgment. And even though many are trying to do away with the day of judgment, universalism is raging in the church today that because God is love and hell is inconsistent with love, there cannot possibly be a place of eternal punishment, yet the Bible teaches it is so. Is hell real? Or is it just a a concept? Is it just a a, a figurative description of life without Jesus? No, hell is a place. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where the worm does not die nor the fire is quenched. It is a place of eternal punishment. The beast and the false prophet are cast in there alive in the book of Revelation and later the devil will join them and then that will be followed by all those who find themselves standing at the great white throne judgment giving an account for their own lives without an advocate named Jesus. But yet many today like the idea of universalism that everybody goes to heaven. Does the Bible teach that? No, not at all. 20, 11 to 15 of Revelation, John says, and I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before God and the books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone, say anyone, 
anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The first thing this literary masterpiece tells us is that there is a difference between the godly and the ungodly, and not only does it identify them in this life via their behavior, it also possibly indicates their eternal destiny. Aren't you glad that God said in his word, though the righteous may fall seven times, he rises again. That's what this weekend is all about, rising up, walking like a man, following the plans of God. And the plan of God, because God is unchanging, is also unchanging. He does not adapt to culture. He does not surrender to popular opinion. Paul calls the traditions of the church, the teachings of the apostles, concrete precepts. They don't change. They're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And all God's men said, And Father, we thank you for your matchless word. Thank you for reminding us of these great truths. Thank you, Lord, for the man whom you chose to communicate these things to us, a man with huge struggles, a man with massive failure, yet a man that you said is one who's after your own heart because he loved your word. And because he said he sinned against God and God alone and his sin gave the enemies of God a chance to blaspheme. And because he saw the great consequences of of his own sin, his life changed and he repented of it. And Lord, even though there were consequences in this life for his sin, he understood that eternity awaited him in heaven with you because of your great mercy and the love with which you've loved him. So we thank you this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to no matter where we've been and what we've done, to rise up and walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. Teach us more how to do so in our next session together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.